Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to 2 Samuel 14, if you're new with us, we've been working our way through this book. One thing I said at the beginning of this series is that when we read uh, Old Testament narrative, uh, there's some, some good rules to apply. Uh, one of the rules is uh, to remember the big picture. Uh, here we see the, the kingdom of God in David, in David's kingdom, and uh, we need to remember in the big picture that it's pointing us forward. It's a shadow of the kingdom to come in Christ, and uh, we, we stand as people in God's kingdom in Christ, and we look back through Christ at these texts. Second thing to remember, not only is the big picture, but when you read Old Testament narrative, it's good to read big sections. Um, sometimes when we get caught up just trying to read a couple verses like we do in the New Testament, we have no idea, and the, the answer is to keep reading. So you notice we took kind of a big section this morning. It's a lot to deal with, but I think it's good to kind of hold it, hold it together. 2 Samuel chapter 8 characterizes uh, David's reign with these words. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. For a while, David's rule embodied the greatness of the very kingdom of God. He ruled with righteousness, serving God's people by striving for justice and equity for all, treating people with mercy, yet courageously bringing justice when needed, always seeking to bring peace to his people. And it was a beautiful kingdom that foreshadowed the future fullness that will come in Jesus. But when we come to today's text, the situation is very different in his kingdom because David as we've seen in the past, has fallen into sin with Bathsheba, adultery, and then murder. And now it is actually 10 years later. And the consequences of his moral failures have have taken their effect. His kingdom is kind of in this moral freefall. His sons have followed in their father's footsteps, continuing and, and really amplifying his sinful failures. One committing rape of his sister, and the other than taking revenge with a mob-style premeditated murder of his brother. And he's thus run away for three years. And David is, is struggling. He hasn't taken action. It seems that <clears throat> he's been weakened by his own moral failures. And thus has this inability to, to curb the wickedness of his sons, and everything is just really spiraling down. So we have this kingdom in in free fall, a society in in moral disintegration from top to bottom. Things are not right. Sin and crime are going unpunished. There is no real justice happening. And we we can kind of relate to such a society, can't we? All you have to do is, you know, Watch the news a little bit, read the paper, you see all the, the wickedness and evil that's thriving in our world. It's going unchecked. Even right here in America, we have all kinds of injustice. We have domestic injustice. Children and, and uh, women being abused in their homes and with no recourse. We have sexual violence and assault. Think of all the trafficking that we've been hearing about, where victims get no justice. We have corporate injustice. We have racial injustice. We have people crying out in the streets about it. We have it all. 
our kingdom is very Davidic in that sense. This downward spiral of sin and injustice from top to bottom. And it really can be that way in our own lives. We stop and think about it. So what do we do? How do we deal with this? How do we fix it? Well, in this section, this kind of larger section of text, I think we see three attempts to fix things. Three very human responses to this broken, unjust situation. We see the attempt of Joab to fix it, the attempt of David, and finally Absalom's attempt to fix it. And I want us to take a close look at their responses and their attempts to fix things. Because I think in these, we will see our world, we'll see our leaders, we'll see ourselves. First of all, we have Joab's response to the whole situation, which I have titled, The Pragmatic Fix. Look at 14 verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Now we probably need a little reminder of who Joab is. If you remember, he is a man of action. He is David's leading commander. He led David's army at the Battle of Gibeon. He is the go-to man who gets things done. He's that confident, able guy who's very self-assured. He's not always right, but he is not in doubt, right? We know the type. And he sees a problem. He knows that David's heart has gone after Absalom. Now, the very first verse is actually a little bit tricky here. In the the ESV's translation, it sounds very positive, right? That his heart is after him. But most scholars agree that this is actually a negative phrase. Some translations say his heart was against him. His heart is after him in a negative way which actually fits the context and, and it fits with uh, you know, chapter 13, verse 21, where we know he's furious with his son for murdering the other son. He hasn't taken any action, but he's very angry. And this is why Absalom, having run away, is effectively banished. He can't come back for fear of David. And Joab can see that this royal rift between father and son is, is a problem. Absalom's the oldest son. He's the heir to the throne. And as we see in the later verses, he's very popular amongst the people. Look at verse uh, 25 of our text again. It says, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair, the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. This is the guy who is supposed to be king next. He's the firstborn. He is handsome from head to toe, very Saul-esque, right? 
and he has amazing hair. <laughs> and on top of it, he's got a beautiful family. His daughter carries the name and beauty of her aunt. So this rift can't stand in Joab's mind. For the, for the sake of, of the kingdom, for a smooth transition of power and stability, Joab knows he must fix this. This is a problem. So he devises this scheme to bring Absalom home, to bring he and David back together. But what we need to see is from the very start, what we need to see is that it's not actually about bringing justice and putting things right. The core problem, David's failure to bring justice as a king, has led to this surface issue, a, a pragmatic political unity. And uh, this is what he responds to, or lack of unity, I should say. This is what he responds to. This is where Joab focuses his attention. He doesn't say to David, he doesn't go to David and say, hey, you need to have Absalom arrested and, and brought back and, and make your judgment as king. And if it be his execution, so be it. That may cause unrest amongst a lot of the people, but that would be the right thing. You need to do what's right before God. It ultimately be best for the people. And he doesn't say, you know, you bring him back, and if he repents, you could show him mercy and only demand some type of restitution, so be it. Even if it upsets some people, that would be the right thing. You must make a judgment and bring justice, which will be best for the people. No. See, that stuff could make things really messy and cause more disunity. No, instead, he goes right to this little scheme he has. Verse, uh, verse 3 and 4 of our text. Let's see here. And Joab said, we'll look at verse 2. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to this king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. He sends this woman from Tekoa. The text describes her as a wise woman. It's, it's, uh, it's the uh, same word, that word crafty. It's the same word used of Jonadab's counsel to help Amnon commit rape. And it's used of the devil's counsel in the garden to deceive Eve. It's not a compliment. She is a craftily deceptive woman. And he sends her as his mouthpiece to David to speak his words. And she comes to David with this predicament for him to solve. This is a chance for him to act as the judge that he should act as, as king. So she tells him the story, supposedly autobiographical. She says uh, that she was a widow with two sons. And one day they got into a scuffle while they were out in the field, and one ended up striking the other, resulting in his death, so that she only has one son left. He's all she's got. But now, her, all her relatives want the surviving son to be put to death for his crime. But that would leave her without a caretaker and her late husband without an heir to carry on the family name. So would, so, so would he, David, would he please have mercy and intervene? 
And with more uh, prodding and manipulation, she eventually gets David to promise that no one will be allowed to take vengeance on her son. He won't let it happen. And then she springs it on him. Kind of like, uh, like Nathan after his parable, right? Saying, you are the man. Right? She says uh, in verse 13, let's read it. Uh, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 13. In verse 13, she says this, And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. She is saying, David, David, what, what you are doing is the same thing. Your heart of, of vengeance against Absalom has left him, left him banished. So you're depriving your, your people of a rightful heir to the throne to take care of them. See the parallels in the story. You're making them vulnerable. You're hurting your people. So just as you've given pardon to my son, you must give pardon to Absalom. Let him return. Now, two things to note here. First of all, David knows that this is really Joab <laughs> speaking. He sees his fingerprints all over it. I'm sure Joab has probably had many conversations trying to convince him to let Absalom back in. So he sees right through this, and uh, he actually calls her out on it in, in verse 19, and she admits it. But secondly, and most importantly, what we need to note is that this woman's story is actually not a fair parallel. Absalom didn't accidentally, in the heat of the moment, kill his brother with an unfortunate blow, did he? He's not like the woman's son in this story. His was a crime of cold, calculated, long-planned, stewed in hate, hit squad murder. Go back and read it. It couldn't be any more like that. Which, according to the law, calls for justice, not clemency. David is being manipulated into compromise, a compromise to let go of, of pursuing justice against Absalom through this woman's crafty words and flattery. Did you notice all the flattery? Look at verse Verse 17, and your servant thought, the word of my Lord the king will set me at rest, for my Lord the king is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. Then look at verse 20, I think, is it 20? Yeah. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this, but my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. She's scheming, she's flattering, and in the end, she gets her way. David concedes and lets Absalom back in without any judgment or punishment. So Joab, really, has succeeded in his fix. He's gotten David to compromise justice for the sake of unity and national strength. This is Joab's response to the issue of injustice. Instead of really dealing with it, you go around it, you compromise, you let things go, you smooth things over for the sake of unity and strength. 
It's a very pragmatic fix of the symptoms, but does nothing to deal with the real problem. It's that Band-Aid on cancer. But it's such a real and relevant response, isn't it? We do this. We can th- many applications. Think at the national government level. I mean, how many times have we seen internal corporate or, or governmental corporate uh, uh, corruption swept under the carpet because exposure, actually dealing with it, would be bad for the country and cause a sense of instability and disunity. And so it gets ignored and maybe even covered up. And in the meantime, there are these wonderful shows of unity. Remember in the 80s, Hands Across America, and Say No to Drugs, and We Are the World. That's, that was my era. All that stuff, right? In the meantime, there's all these scandals going on behind the scenes. At the church level, we also see this kind of, of fixing in the church. There's often this culture that wants to excuse failures and and foibles and and outright sins and its popular leaders for the sake of unity. We've seen it in the Catholic Church, and more recently it's being exposed in the evangelical church, leaders involved in sexual sin, abusing their powers. And unfortunately, what we keep hearing over and over is how when victims have, have, have gone forward seeking justice, they've been shut down and counseled to say nothing Let it be dealt with internally in the name of unity. Don't cause division and and, and hurt of the witness of the church. We need to stay united and strong. It's pragmatic. A pragmatic fix, a band-aid that only caused the problem to fester. There's a podcast I subscribe to called The The Roy's Report. This woman reporter is dedicated to exposing corruption in the church wherever it may be. Paul Reese, our former pastor, put me onto it. It's very good. She's doing a great job. But you know what? She gets endless hate mail from Christians that's vitriol because they say she's hurting the church. People are angrier about, angrier about her exposure of the sin to deal with it than they are about the actual sins. No concern for justice. Pragmatics. And of course, we do it in our own lives. We can't confront or deal with that problem in our marriage, not right now. It would be relationally really messy. What would people think? For the sake of family unity, let's just put a Band-Aid on it. You know, until the kids are in college, at least. It won't fester into something horrible and messy and explode in our faces. That's always the problem with the pragmatic fix. It's always just covers over and ultimately compounds things. So that's Joab's attempt, his kind of sideways fix for their broken kingdom. But David also has a fix. It's a lot simpler. Have you noticed David's fix? I call it the avoidance fix. We've already seen David's tendency to put off dealing with things highlighted uh, with, with the passing of time references in our text over the past weeks. Each time there's been an injustice, David has taken the bold action of procrastination. With the rape of his daughter, we're told, first thing we're told, and two years went by. 
with the murder of Amnon. We see in, in, in chapter 13, uh, verse 38, this is what it says. So Amnon fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. David's response to the injustice all around him is to put it off and do nothing. It's too hard and messy to deal with. I'm sure he's not even sure exactly what to do at times. It's easier just to ignore it and just to get as much space and time between him and the problem and kind of pretend it's not there. And he continues this in our text today. Even after Absalom is allowed to come back into the kingdom, after he makes that concession, look at, uh, look at verse 23. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Skip over to verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. He's put it off for five years now. This is his fix. In a sense, it's... It's the no-fix, because you ignore the problem. If you can put the problem out of sight and out of mind, out of your presence, then there's nothing to work on. And I can relate to this one. I do this with my house maintenance issues. When you walk in my front door, there are two holes in my ceiling entryway from a leak that happened years ago. But I have fixed the problem. I just don't look up. <laughs> I've trained myself not to look up. It's wonderful, the problem's fixed. It's like magic. I call this the deny and smile and do nothing approach. And it works really well for me. You can put it into practice in your marriage. If you have a problem, just don't talk about it. And if the problem is communication, just don't talk at all. If you're not talking, you can't argue. You can put it into practice in your, in your parenting, right? Kids acting up, you can banish them to their rooms for a few days. Some people call it grounding. If they're not around, then they're not a problem. This is actually not how I do things. People are going to be lining up for counseling now. <laughs> I joke a little about but but it's very real, isn't it? It's very us, especially us men, the avoidance and do nothing fix. And you know, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Men love to point out in that scene how it was Eve, you know, that first, you know, bit into the apple. But actually, one thing that stands out in the text is how Adam is right there when the devil comes to deceive and is interacting with Eve, and he says and does nothing. He's supposed to be the guardian and the protector of the, of the garden kingdom and the servant leader of his wife, but it all falls on Eve because he is avoiding, he is doing nothing. From Adam to David to Carrie. These are the fixes of man before sin and injustice and all the collateral damage that comes, the pragmatic fix that covers over for the sake of unity and strength, the avoidance fix that just denies and compounds things, 
And then there's the final fix we see here, which is Absalom's approach. We see it in chapter 15, verses 1 to 12, and I've titled it The Political Fix. I've called it this because it has every element of classic political maneuvering or campaigning. It has pomp, pandering, and promising. Mostly empty promising. You see, after weaseling his way back into proximity of, of King David, he eventually, with a lot of coercion, namely setting, what's his name, field on fire, <laughs> he eventually manages to get David's begrudging blessing to sort of retake his prince status. We see it at the end of chapter 14, look at verse 33. Then Joab went to the king, after his field had been lit on fire, and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. He gets the king's kiss. His, his seal of approval, in a sense, he's, he's in, he's back in business. And he wastes no time. Look at chapter 15. Let's just read through these first verses. It says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. I love that. Right there, there's the pomp, right? Here he is with his good looks and his perfect hair and his beautiful family, and now he's traveling in his cavalcade of chariots, and he has his entourage of 50 men, like his, the secret service agent. You can see him running along the side. Everybody can see how important he is. Go on in verse 2. And Absalom used to rise early and stand behind beside the way of the gate. We need to understand the city gate was kind of the courthouse of the day. It's where people would go to, you know, to, to bring, to plead their case in hope of getting a hearing with the king. Look at verse 2b. And, so as he's standing there at the gate, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Here's the pandering, right? Hey, man, where are you from? What, what's your tribe? And then before the man can even present his case, you are right, you are good. You are absolutely right. That's what we all want to hear. You're right and you're good. But unfortunately, he says, you can't, you can't get a hearing with this lousy government. These, these days, they, they, they're not really here for you. They don't care for the small guy. Foster that discontent. Then verse 4, then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. The actual phrase is, I would declare in his favor. There you have it. There's the promising. The empty promising. He goes from pomp to pander to promising. I'll bring justice. If you just give me a chance, I'll bring the justice for each one of you. I'll, I'll decide in your favor. And then he tops it off with the age-old political move, verse 5, and whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, notice that, and he would put 
out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Well, he's done it, uh, he's done it quite well. He's stolen the hearts. You know, he's made these promises that are mostly empty promises. He can't possibly deliver, right, on all these cases. He didn't even really hear them. They couldn't all possibly be right and good. But that doesn't stop him from making the promise. Why? Because he so desires to bring justice and equity? No. Because he's ambitious for power. I mean, that's where this is going. You just read on in this chapter, much less the next few chapters. He is angling for a coup. He wants to dethrone the Lord's anointed. Remember, remember David, he, he wouldn't do that to Saul. How dare he touch the Lord's anointed? You see, this guy's a little different. He didn't have any problem putting his hands on the Lord's anointed. Because he is about himself and his ambitious ambition, not the kingdom. And you know what's amazing about this whole scene? It's not only that it worked for Absalom, but that it works today. Man, this is one we fall for over and over. At least every four years. We love the political fix, the empty promises and pandering. When was the last time you heard a successful politician say, you know, I just, I just can't agree with your grievances. They're not justified. Uh, I, I think you're being unreasonable. I'm sorry about your pain and suffering, but I actually probably won't be able to do anything to help you. <laughs> yes, I will raise taxes, and things are going to get tougher for everybody, but, and I, I really can't guarantee that it will do anything. No, 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 no. Tell us you're going to fix everything if we'll just get behind you and get rid of the other guy. Make a giant, unkeepable promise so we can rally around you, deluding ourselves that things are really going to change. I know it's a little cynical. But it's what we keep doing over and over again. We love pandering and promises. We're addicted to the political fix. And we do it in the church, in evangelicalism. We have pandering gospel preachers that never speak, of sin that tell us that we are good and right and God just wants us to be happy. We have prosperity gospelers preaching, preachers that, that make empty promises that the Bible never makes. Follow Jesus and you'll gain the desires of your heart. You'll be healthy and wealthy. It's untrue, but we love it. And it's packaged in many shapes and forms. One of the most pervasive and I think very subtle ones in our circles is what I call the purity prosperity gospel. It's the idea sold to Christian teens that purity now will result in a great marriage and sex life later. Follow the rules now, be good, and everything will be great later. I hate to tell you this, it's not true. Yes, of course, we should honor God by pursuing purity and obeying his word, which will help us avoid much relational damage in our lives, but we will still end up in our marriage, one sinner, 
married to another sinner in a sinful world with all kinds of issues and struggles to work out. And to live with that kind of transactional idea in your head, I'm following God because he's going to bring some personal blessing to my life now, health or family stability or a great marriage, it's idolatry. And it's not true. These prosperity preachers are pandering and over-promising, and it's empty. These are the best fixes that humankind has to offer our messed up world. Pragmatic prom, uh, compromise, avoid and do nothing, political pandering and promises, promises that are empty. And it, it all is clearly useless in the end. You see, one of the reasons these stories, I think, are recorded for us in the Old Testament is to help us see the hopelessness of man's ways and his fixes that we're still trying. And then to kind of maybe examine ourselves as to which of these is our proclivity. Who are we like here? Are you like Joab? Are you like David? Are you like Absalom? So we, we can look at these so that we can maybe see ourselves, not be deceived and, and turn away. And then look to the hope that this story ultimately leads to, to the true king coming in the line of David, the forever son of God, King Jesus, who actually can and does bring real justice and equity for all. Because in him, there is no Joab. There is no pragmatic compromise. He doesn't cover over injustice and sin to try to create some false sense of, of unity. No, he fulfills the law. He lives a just and righteous life for us and calls all people to righteousness by, righteousness by faith in him. That's bringing real unity. And he doesn't, like David, avoid the messiness of engaging with judgment and punishment that sin deserves. No, he sets his face when he comes here straight at the cross. No avoidance at all. He goes straight to the cross where he will take all our judgment and the punishment that we deserve, satisfying God's justice and winning us mercy. And he doesn't come like Absalom with selfish ambition and political tactics and charm. He's the exact opposite of Absalom, isn't he? He isn't even handsome, according to Psalm 53. And he comes to serve, not to be served. He doesn't pander with lies to gain our favor, but speaks the offensive truth about our sin and hell and the need to repent. And he doesn't promise what he cannot deliver for his own promotion. Rather, he promises salvation and he gives his pure life and our place to make it happen. You see, the only hope for our unjust, messed up world, for our messed up lives, is Jesus, the ultimate king, lifted up on the cross. It's the only hope. We must not be distracted and lured by the fixes of the world. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for these very rich and real stories recorded from people that although lived in ancient times, ultimately are just like us and really in the same situations and trying the same fixes. Lord, help us to learn. Help us to uh, become wise unto salvation in your Son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.